So this morning, uh, I try to continue with the prophet Daniel. Actually, just so you know, in about uh, two weeks, Dave Weatherby, our illustrious worship leader, will be actually taking the first part of the ninth chapter of Daniel. It's, uh, yeah, actually, it's one of those great passages to preach, honestly. Not so much with mine. Uh, <laughs> this morning, how, do I, how can I put it? I, I, I think I said uh, my Facebook post, something was like, I really needed to take communion after preaching this morning. Something along uh, those lines. Uh, it's really good to know that Jesus still loves me. There's grace for pastors, and uh, there is an exercise when you receive communion in keeping the main thing the main thing. And then somebody goes, it was actually, uh, I think somebody from Colorado Springs said, well, Mike, I've never heard you preach, but I've heard great things about your preaching. I'm sure it wasn't that bad. And I said, well, the elements were there. You know, it was just the exposition. Uh, it's kind of like if you went to a restaurant and they served you a meal and your mashed potatoes were on top of your steak and the green beans were on the floor. You know, it's really good food, but the presentation's off. And, and, and that's kind of what happened this morning. It was good stuff, but yeah, it was uh, a little bit scattered in its presentation. So I've, I've gone back and tried to rework it. I mean, very uh, often I feel better about the first sermon I give because it's kind of fresh and it's natural and it's spontaneous. Uh, and then the second sermon sometimes seems a little bit more studied, but <laughs> not today. Today, I think you're going to get the benefit, at least I hope you'll get the benefit, of uh, my reworking of the elements of the presentation. So I'd like to start off with a couple quotes. I went and talked to the Old Testament professor uh, extraordinaire at Denver Seminary, Dr. Rick Hess, uh, this week, and he had a quote that I thought was really, really good that I'd like to lead off with. He said something along this line, the purpose of prophecy is to encourage, challenge, and comfort the people of God in difficult times. The purpose of prophecy is to encourage, challenge, and comfort the people of God in difficult times. As an overarching definition of prophecy, I really like that. Prophecy in terms of uh, foretelling or foretelling the future, either one. I think this is a really good thing to remember as we go through this part of Daniel's prophecy. Because Daniel was going through a really, really hard time. He was an exile from the land of Israel in Babylon. He knew that his homeland was lying in ruins. The temple was not in operation. There were no priests. There were no sacrifices. All the implements of the temple were now being stored in the treasure house of Babylon. Uh, the walls were broken down. It was just a desolate place. Almost, it made Israel a laughing stock among the nations. And this distressed Daniel. And so, these prophetic words that we're reading today are given to Daniel to actually encourage him and to comfort him and maybe even to challenge him to pray for the restoration of Israel. Because the vision we're about to talk about actually comes after a prolonged prayer of repentance that Daniel has. The answer comes in response to that prayer, which Dave will talk about in a couple weeks' time. 
Dr. Charlie Dyer, who is professor at Moody Bible Institute, says this, God gave prophecy to change our hearts, not to fill our heads with knowledge. God never predicted the future events just to satisfy our curiosity about the future. God has a plan for history. That plan is sure. The coming of Christ is marked on his heavenly calendar somewhere up in heaven. He's got the master calendar. I unfortunately do not have that on my iPhone. Neither do you. Neither do many, many theologians who are trying like crazy to figure out what the calendar of events are in the chapter we're going to read today. But it's really not about exactly how it's going to happen in a calendar kind of way. It's to give us a sense that God is at work, that we need not be afraid that there is a date set for the return of Jesus, among other things. So, (laughs) fools will go where angels fear to tread. Here we go, Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 20. This is Daniel writing. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and making my request to the Lord my God for his holy hill, that would be Jerusalem spilled up on a hill. While I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. Now this may be one of those times where uh, you know, angels are said to fly. I mean, Daniel doesn't say he had wings. Artists have done that for the last 1,500 years or so to try and convey that. Um, but he came about 3 or 4 in the afternoon. That's when the evening sacrifice was going on just as Daniel was finishing up his prayer. I mean, think about this for a second. If you were praying something deep, heartfelt, anguishing over it, and an angel came to give you a little help, wouldn't that be amazing? That's what happens here. Gabriel, the angel he had seen earlier. We talked about him, I think it was either last week or the week before. All right, verse 22 He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come, or literally the Hebrew, I've come out, meaning coming out of the presence of God, I've come out to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given. In the Hebrew again, an answer came out. Where did it come out from? From the presence of God. Which I have come to tell you. For you are highly esteemed. That has got to make you feel good. Doesn't it? The fact that God would send an answer because he thinks that much of you. Here's the... If you have bowed your knee and confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then you have become one of the highly esteemed as far as God is concerned. 
Because he cannot look at you without looking at the image of his son that's in you. And no matter what you've done or where you've gone or whom you've hurt, you will be in great favor with the God of heaven. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. Daniel is about to get more than he prayed for. Daniel was praying, actually, because he was reading a letter from the prophet Jeremiah. And in the letter from the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah talked about how long the Jews would be in exile in Babylon. And Daniel realizes, he's now an old man, that that time is coming to an end. And so he's praying about the return of his people to the promised land from exile in Babylon. He's about to get a lot more. He's about to get insight, not into just the 70 or so years they were in captivity. He's about to get insight into the next 490 years and beyond. So sometimes when we pray and we ask for wisdom, God is pleased to give us much more than we ask for. Much like if you have a parent who loves you and you ask for something from your mom or dad. Let's say you ask for one French fry from the pile of French fries that your dad has at the restaurant. It's a great likelihood dad will give you more than one French fry. That's what happens here. Listen to this in verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen now. Seven the times seven, which we're pretty sure from the context of Jeremiah's letters and this letter is that we're talking about years. We're talking about years. The Hebrew just says seven, but we're pretty sure it's years. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city. So what's coming up is I'm going to talk to you about Israel your people, and your capital city, Jerusalem. That's what I'm about to talk about. Let's keep that in mind as he goes on with the prophecy. He's not talking about much else except for what's going to happen in and around Jerusalem and what's going to happen to the Jewish people. All right? There's uh, kind of two categories here, actually. If you take the first three things he says, they can kind of be in one category. You take the second three things, they can be in another category. Your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness. So in other words, there's, there's been some stuff going on, right? And there's going to be some stuff going on. It has to do with sin and wickedness, iniquity, transgression. Those are all kind of negative words, aren't they? But then he says also to bring in everlasting righteousness. That sounds good. That sounds really good. 
to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to put the king's stamp of approval on the prophecy that he's about to receive. The king's seal means it's from the king, right? And to anoint the most holy. Well, that sounds good too. Now, is he talking about what? What's, what's going to be anointed? Well, it could be the place of the temple, the holy of holies, or it could be a person. We're not sure. You're going to find out as we go through this chapter, there are a lot of differing opinions. All right? And I will try not to confuse you as much as I confuse people this morning. So what I've decided to do is this. I'm going to go through this passage, and I'm going to tell you what I think based on my study over the last 40 years of this kind of prophecy. Some of you are going to disagree with me, or you're going to have pastors back home who disagree with me, or you're not going to know even whether you ought to disagree with me because you have no idea what I'm talking about. But there are other ways to look at this passage, and I'll kind of tip my hat to those. But I'm not going to go into them like I did this morning because that just makes it clear as mud. So you want to talk about those other ways of looking at it. See me later. I can probably get a few other people to uh, help out with that as well. Now, 77s. Probably the most definitive thing I could say about the 77s is that they were a great band back in the 90s. Next slide. There we go. Mike Rowe is the lead singer. And if you have any of their stuff, it's really good. I highly recommend it. Good lyrics, good music, rock, right? 77s. Um, yeah, there you go. That's about as funny as we're going to get from here on out, folks. All right, Daniel 9.25. Gabriel goes on. He says this, No one understands this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes, there will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. I'm going to read that over again. No one understand this from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be seven sevens and sixty-two sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Again, he's talking about Jerusalem and he's talking about the Jewish people. So what he's saying is, Look, Daniel, I know you're worried about Jerusalem. It's lying in ruins right now. It's going to be rebuilt. Don't worry about that. It will be rebuilt. As a matter of fact, what I believe is it's divided up for that very purpose. I believe that the first seven sevens, which is how many years, folks? 49 years is what it takes to completely rebuild Jerusalem. Now, if you're a Bible student and you've read Nehemiah, you know that the Jews go back and they build the walls up in like less than 60 days. They get those walls up really, really, really fast after the decree comes that the Jews can go back and start rebuilding again. 
That actually happens in accordance with Jeremiah's prophecy. The one that Daniel had been reading, for which he was praying. And now Gabriel says, yes, definitely that's going to occur. But there's something else that's going to happen because it's going to be totally rebuilt. So it's going to take 49 years for streets in a trench. Well, a trench could be an aqueduct system. And streets could be not just streets, but people living on the streets and commerce in the streets and everything back to normal. It's going to take a while, right? Got to repopulate this thing after it's been desolate. So, the first part, if we have 62 sevens and we have seven sevens, how many does that make? How many sevens does that make total? 69 sevens, right? You add 62 and you add 7, you get 69, 69 sevens. All right. So if the first delineation is about the rebuilding totally of Jerusalem, then there's something that happens then at the end of the rest of the sevens. And what is that? The anointed one, the ruler comes. The anointed one, the ruler comes. Now, the Hebrew word for the anointed one just happens to be the word Messiah. Where we get the word Christ. Are you following me? Many theologians believe that Gabriel is predicting the arrival of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, in Jerusalem, 69 times 7 years hence. If you try to work this out mathematically, you're going to have a problem. The reason you have a problem is because you're going to be using our current calendar. Remember I said... The only one who has the accurate calendar is God up in heaven in his office wall. I mean, first of all, the Jewish calendar is like 360 days a year because the Jewish calendar goes by the moon. All right? Then you've got the Julian and the Gregorian calendars in there and all these changes and stuff like that. But let's just say, if you went and did all that math, you would come up with 173,880 days. 173,880 days. From the time the decree is issued until the time the anointed one appears. If you look at it one way, and a lot of people do look at it this way, you go from the very day we find out in the book of Nehemiah, says it's okay to go back and build Jerusalem, to the exact day that we know in history when Jesus Christ entered into Jerusalem amid shouts of Hosanna, welcome is the king of Israel, as he's riding the donkey's colt into the cities, people are going crazy. It's exactly 173,800. 80 days. Why do you think 
people were so crazy about Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem. Because they were kind of keyed up. The whole nation was abuzz with Messiah talk for a long time. Remember in Jesus' dedication at the temple, you had ancient Anna and Simeon who come up and they prophesy over the child, talking about how he's going to do this and that. There were lots of people claiming to be messiahs who came and went, we're told. We had magi that came from Babylon when Jesus was born. Why would they come? Well, guess where Daniel is? He's in Babylon. Where is he writing? He's in Babylon. Could there be writings left behind by Daniel that were there for 500 years, and finally some guys are looking at the stars, looking at the writings of Daniel, go, hey, this is it. The anointed one is coming. Let's go to Israel and find him. So it's not unusual that this stuff was happening. People were so excited about Jesus coming. I'm sorry, about the Messiah coming. They didn't know it was Jesus. Certainly the rulers did not know it was Jesus. They didn't want it to be Jesus. They had a whole different template for what this anointed one was going to look like, and Jesus looked nothing like that. But it's amazing if you look at it one way to the day. It predicts the arrival of Jesus in Jerusalem hailed as the Messiah. It's weird. It's cool. It should give you encouragement. It should bring you comfort that the Bible is true. It should challenge you to believe in the Bible and to live out a life that is worthy of a God who esteems you and gives you such advanced warnings. It gets cooler. Listen to this. Verse 26, just the first half because we can't do the whole verse. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. It doesn't say during the 62 sevens. It says after the 62 sevens, like maybe a week after, less than a week after. If Jesus came in on Palm Sunday... He's crucified on Friday. And he's crucified naked. He has nothing. They're gambling for his clothes. His disciples have deserted him. The nation has rejected him. Again, this is about Israel and about Jerusalem. He has none of that. Nothing. And it's predicted. 500 years before. It's amazing. It's absolutely mind-boggling. But there's more. 26b. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, meaning Jerusalem, The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now, 
Let's go back to the second chapter of Daniel. We had the vision of the, cha- of the statue. Let's go back to the beast that come out of the water. We have the empire of Rome, which is to come. And we know from history that 37 or so years after Jesus is crucified and rises from the dead, that Roman legions under the emperor Titus come and they totally destroy the city of Jerusalem. They don't leave one stone on top of another in the temple just as Jesus predicted it would happen. Because when they burned the temple, the gold that was up on the walls and on the roof and stuff melted and the silver melted and it went down between the cracks of these giant stones and the Roman soldiers trying to get all they possibly could out of the destruction of Jerusalem actually took crowbars and pulled each stone apart getting the melted gold and silver that was in between the stones of the temple. And so Jesus' prophecy came true. I'm going to read you a portion of what Jesus said. Luke 19, starting in verse 39. During his triumphal entry, remember? Palm branches waving, people singing Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. The Apostle John says this in the first chapter of his gospel. He came into the very world he created, but the world did not recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. The anointed one is cut off and left with nothing. And then the city that he loves is destroyed. Predicted. 500 years or so before it happened, through the prophet Daniel. It's really amazing. It's sad. It's terrible. But it's amazing. The Apostle John goes on to say something else, which I think is important for the rest of our study of Daniel, chapter 9. He says this in his first chapter of his gospel. John says, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. 
So his own people reject him, but to all who believe him and accept him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but from a birth that comes from God. This is when the church is born, is it not? We see the Holy Spirit come down at Pentecost. Today is Pentecost Sunday, for those of you who aren't aware of the church calendar. Today, uh, most of the church in the whole world is uh, celebrating Pentecost Sunday. But the Holy Spirit comes and the church is born. And it seems like even though God loves Israel, He's full of promises for Israel in the Old Testament and even in the New, but it seems like they're kind of on hold. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But he begins dealing, it seems, speaking to these people who accept him, primarily Gentiles. And he begins speaking through the people who accept him, primarily Gentiles, not Jews. You and me. We're like a tree limb that's been grafted on to the true tree, the olive tree of ancient Israel. All right, I'm going to just repeat verse 26b. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. Well, that sounds bad. Verse 27. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. Okay, now here is a huge point of contention for Bible scholars. To whom is the he referring? I think it's referring to the ruler from the verse before. Remember it says, the people of the ruler who is to come will destroy Jerusalem. Well, I'm thinking that it makes sense to me in terms of proximity that the he here is the ruler who's going to destroy Jerusalem. But again, I'm not so sure because it's at this point where other theologians think maybe he's not just talking about Titus or the Roman general. Maybe they become like a prefiguring, a, a foreshadowing of someone who is to come later. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. All right, let's review. Before this, how many sevens have we talked about? 69 sevens, right? All of a sudden, we're picking up the last seven, it appears to me, in verse 27. Now we're talking about this last seven years. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. We've heard that phrase before, if you were here last week. Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. So the question that I have, could... Gabriel, the angel, be speaking of the future Antichrist who is to come. That he's going to set up a, some kind of a deal with Israel, because that's who we're talking about in this passage. He's going to set up some kind of a deal, some kind of a covenant for seven years for peace, 
But in the middle of that seven years, He's going to turn on them. He's going to show His true colors. And He's going to be the kind of guy that Antiochus Epiphanes was when we talked about last time. Where He sets up a false God in the Holy of Holies. He stops the Jewish sacrifices from happening. He forbids people from being Jewish, basically, and puts an end. He tries to put an end to the Jewish religion. We don't know. It could be, though. So let's watch. Because at some point, this world is going to get closer and closer to the end. And the Bible prophecy is there because of the things that we talked about at first for challenge, for encouragement, for comfort, then maybe right here, it'll give us a clue as to who the Antichrist is. Trust me, if some charismatic, beautiful, wonderful ruler comes and makes a deal for peace in the Middle East and all the Jews are going, yeah, 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 you're our guy, you're our guy. Watch him closely for at least three and a half years and see if this is not about him. We don't know. We just don't know. All right. There's other ways to look at this passage. Trust me. I'm not going to confuse you with that now. I'll bring it up a little bit later on. If uh switch to the next uh, little graph I got. I don't know if you can see this or not, uh, but it's a graph that I found online. It kind of takes what we've talked about and makes it into a timeline. So you've got the uh, first set of sevens, right? The 49 years, starting in 444 B.C. It could be 445 B.C. We're not sure because there is no year zero on our calendar. You guys know there's no year zero? Did you know that? Good, you should. It goes from the, uh, 1 B.C. to 1 A.D. Anyway, um, so 444 or 445, the, the Jews can return home and rebuild Jerusalem. That starts our time clock right there. We have seven sevens, which is the rebuilding of Jerusalem back up to uh, full speed. And then we have the 62 sevens, which are the remaining time until A.D. 33, which is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem as the anointed one. All right, then he's cut off. He's crucified. He rises. Now you'll see uh, this gap in the timeline. It's called the church. And then we pick up the last week. I'm sorry, the last seven is after that. Because the word after is used in the passage. So what happens? According to some biblical scholars, it's as if God is talking to Israel and through Israel. They've got this thing going. They've got a Skype thing going on, right? God and Israel are Skyping. And all of a sudden, God says, I'll tell you what, you've rejected me. I'm putting you on hold for a while. So he puts, he just kind of presses the pause button. And he begins a conversation with the Gentiles, with the rest of the world, who believe and accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. That's that gap up there. Now, has he 
stopped talking? Is he cut off? Is he not going to go back to Israel? Definitely he is going to go back to Israel. You know, what happens is, at the end of the church age, according to a lot of theologians and myself, uh, I'm not a theologian, I'm a pastor, but I believe that what happens is, then God uh, kind of makes it a three-way Skyping session. So you have Israel, and you've got the Gentile church, and you've got God, all in communication for that last seven. That's what I think. I might be wrong. We'll see. Because I'll be watching, actually. I'll be watching to see how this all plays out. If it doesn't play out the way I think it does, that's okay. I still believe Jesus is returning. That on God's master calendar, somewhere up in heaven, on his office wall, he has that date marked in red. Jesus returns. All right? Antichrist is defeated. Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom. Everything is great. I believe that. I don't have to worry about the details. But prophecy is given so that people, as they're going through this timeline, will know the seal will come undone, and they'll know when they're in it. Daniel understood less about this than you do now. You get that? Daniel didn't understand near as much as you do because you have 2,500 years in your rearview mirror. Let's go to the next slide. Here are my points. If you look closely, and you were here last week, you will notice they are the same points I had last week. Because we're still talking about biblical prophecy. What does the study of prophecy tell us? Well, have confidence in God. Number two, God is a timekeeper. Number three, Go and do the king's business. What did Daniel do after this vision? He got up, and he went, and he did the king's business. I'm going to end with this. Scholars are divided about what I just told you. Some people believe that... The end of the 69 sevens was when Jesus was baptized and he began his ministry. And then <clears throat> that last seven, okay, so we completed the 69 sevens. Now we're, the last seven comes right away, right away. This is what they believe then, that the first half, of Jesus, of, the, of that, that, that seven, that three and a half years, is Jesus' earthly ministry. And that Jesus is crucified in the middle of the last period of seven years. That uh, he's the one that puts an end to sacrifice of the temple. And the reason they say that is because once Jesus is crucified, 
You don't need the sacrifices at the temple anymore. I mean, they were still going on until 70 A.D. when the Romans came and destroyed the city, but effectually they were over. Like they weren't doing anything anymore. The curtain in the temple was torn in two. They were ineffective. Jesus had abolished them. And that the end of the seven years, the last set of seven years, occurs to, uh, with the, uh, the stoning of Stephen and the rejection of the, uh, the church by the Jews. I just say that because it's out there. I'm not going to go any further than that. But even people who believe that believe in the literal and physical return of Jesus to this earth. They believe. It's just a way of figuring out how things happen in the middle. It's kind of like this. Picture a plane leaving Denver and set to arrive in London, England. There's a specific departure time for the plane from Denver, and there's a specific arrival time for the plane in England, at Heathrow Airport. It says so on your ticket, right? Arrive this time. History is like that. In terms of the coming of Jesus, we know Jesus came at a specific time, and we know that somewhere up in heaven, on God's office wall, there is a red-letter date for the return of Jesus. It's going to happen, no doubt about it. We all believe it. What happens in the plane between Denver and London, who knows? It's up for grabs. We've all got our different interpretations of who's going to sit where and what they're going to serve for dinner and who's in first class and who's in economy and you know, how many flight attendants are going to be and when you get a potty break. I mean, it's all up for grabs. So it doesn't matter to me how you look at the 70 weeks of Daniel, as long as you are one in believing that it all ends up with the return of Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, to rule as Lord of heaven and earth. Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for this difficult passage. Lord, I pray that it encourages people. I pray that it challenges people. And I pray that it comforts others, Lord, that you are active in the history of men and women, that you are active in our own lives. Surely, Lord, if you can direct the sweep of history, you can direct our puny little lives. We acknowledge you as Lord and Master. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.